Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Helen Worrell, Defence and Security Editor at the Financial Times, filling in for Gideon Rackman, who is away on leave. In this week's podcast, we'll be looking at the UK's new defence strategy, which sets out how Britain's armed forces will modernise to combat emerging threats from Russia and China and help shape a new role for the UK outside the EU. My guest is General Sir Patrick Sanders, Commander of the UK Strategic Command which oversees digital, cyber, space and special forces operations across the British military. He's also a contender to become next chief of the defence staff at the end of November. So, how is the UK adapting to the changing nature of warfare? When Boris Johnson launched his defence, security and foreign policy strategy last month, he set out to define a vision of what post-Brexit Britain would look like and how it would engage with the rest of the world. The overriding purpose of this review, the most comprehensive since the Cold War, is to make the United Kingdom stronger, safer and more prosperous while standing up for our values. Our international policy is a vital instrument for fulfilling this government's vision of uniting and levelling up across our country reinforcing the Union and securing Britain's place as a science superpower and a hub of innovation and research. The focus is on boosting defences against Russia and China, which have pursued a strategy of gradual aggression against their enemies and competitors, which always stops short of formal armed conflict. Beijing's navy is more and more assertive against Taiwan in the South China Sea. Undersea cables which carry crucial internet data are at risk from sabotage by Moscow submarines in the Atlantic. Three years ago, in Salisbury, a British woman died in the aftermath of Moscow's attempted assassination of a former Russian spy, using the nerve agent Novichok. Three months into the clean-up, two unconnected local people, Dawn Sturgis and Charlie Rowley, fell ill, and it became clear that the Novichok contamination had spread much more widely than first thought. Dawn later died in hospital. And nearby- Britain has always been considered a top-tier military power, but keeping up with adversaries means making difficult choices. To invest in new technology, older equipment is being phased out, and satellites and drones are being brought in. Resupplies of ammunition, food and other equipment. As part of future commando force developments, these tasks are expected to be done by drones. Always resupply has been guys carrying stuff and running it forward from the rear echelons that bring it to a certain point. So The scale of the reduction has only just become clear. The UK is cutting its army by just under 10,000 personnel to 72,500 troops, the smallest it's been for over 300 years. The number of tanks will reduce by a third. 
The question now is whether Britain can retain a credible fighting force as it makes the transition to a different type of warfare. I started our conversation by asking Patrick Sanders why the UK needed to make such a fundamental change in its approach. We've got a whole range of new threats that are coming at us at an exponential rate, whether that is states and a return to great power competition, whether it's the enduring threat from terrorists, or whether it's the emergence of proxies and mercenaries. And technology and the technologies that are available have changed. And if you want a good example of where that technology has has really changed the character of conflict, then you need to look no further than Nagorno-Karabakh, where quite a traditional sort of industrial era set of armed forces were taken apart by armed drones hitting tanks that were previously thought to be invulnerable. And then, of course, warfare has expanded into new domains, into space and into cyberspace, which is really where we come in in strategic command. And then the techniques that are being used, a much broader definition of warfare, and that playing out in what we're calling this grey zone. Um, So if you listen to General Gerasimov, who heads up the Russian armed forces, he described how wars are no longer declared and conflict is eternal. So they're using a whole range of different techniques to gain a strategic advantage. So how will you be adapting the UK armed forces to meet these new threats and take back the strategic advantage? Well, it was set out in the UK's integrated review and the Defence Command paper that followed it. But essentially, there's an expanded role. So we're expanding into new domains of space and cyberspace above the traditional domains of land, sea and air. We also recognise that if we're going to defend our interests, we have to be prepared to compete because the alternative is that you simply acquiesce and you end up being subjected to a sort of insidious loss of advantage and the accrual of advantage on the part of your rivals, your adversaries. So we're going to be much more globally deployed, working with allies and working with partners. And we're also going to be focused on making sure that we are resilient at home. And then we're going to be more integrated with the other levers of government. So not being kept on the shelf just for war fighting, but being used as an instrument of national power, more integrated with partners, not just NATO, but others too, and then integrated across those five domains that I talked about earlier on. And then we're beginning a process. What this has really catalyzed is a pivot to information age warfare. That's about making sure that we're able to harness and exploit the advantages of data. It's applying emerging technologies like artificial intelligence that in turn allows you to develop autonomous systems and pursuing some of the emerging advantages that you get from drones and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. So that's a sort of broad overview of how we're changing and why. Just to pick up on one of the things that you mentioned about the grey zone, which is this no man's land we hear more and more about, which is sort of between peace and war. One of the things that you have discussed before is about China changing the international order with a strategy of winning without fighting, which seems to be almost an exact definition of what happens in the grey zone. Can you give some examples of what Beijing has done in this area? Yeah, I mean, it's it's important that when we think about China, you know, we don't put it in the same category as Russia, which is an outright threat. China has often been described as a strategic challenge, but it's also a vital global player. And so 
finding a way of being able to live with China and to make sure that we pursue mutual interests would be a good place to start. China, it's not that China doesn't like rules. It's just it doesn't like the rules of the international system as they're currently constructed. And so they're trying to reshape those rules in a way that suits a more authoritarian approach that you see represented across China. And we're seeing it play out in front of our eyes in places like Hong Kong. So the sort of examples you could see would be the capture of, of key technologies. We saw that with 5G and Huawei, but also challenging accepted international law. So in the South China Sea, the Chinese have concreted over reefs in waters that are either claimed by other states or are recognized to be international waters. And so you get these sort of fait accompli strategies, which are not only challenging, but changing the very nature of the international system. And then through their One Belt and Road strategy and investments in infrastructure in in countries like Africa, what you effectively get is debt trap diplomacy. And sometimes the price you pay for that diplomacy is votes in the UN, which begins to change the balance of international institutions and the rules that are written therein to suit the Chinese. Now, you could say that's just legitimate competition and the Chinese are trying to break themselves out of a straitjacket they would see that binds them unfairly. We would say that the rules of the international system that we've lived with since the end of the Second World War have, broadly speaking, benefited the whole of humanity and should be worth preserving. I think when you talk about issues such as that one you just mentioned with the UN, these seem like diplomatic problems. Can you just talk a bit about how in a military sense, you would approach this era of constant competition between great powers? Competition doesn't play out solely in the diplomatic or the economic or the military domain. It plays out across all of those. And so the West has tended to think of warfare in quite a narrow sense. And when the Russians and the Chinese looked at how we had achieved extraordinary dominance in wars like the Second Gulf War. They adapted their own strategies, not to seek open conflict, but to apply all of the levers of state power to secure their advantage. And that might have been through military means, but it was also through diplomatic, through legal and through economic means. So you can't really disentangle them. And that's this point about integration that the Integrated Review sets out, that if you want to be more competitive, you have to integrate those levers properly. In the military domain, we're subjected to, quite routinely, a lot of attacks, uh, disruption and espionage in cyberspace. And being able to counter that is important. So rather than keeping your cyber capabilities, your offensive cyber capabilities, sort of locked away for use only when you're attacked, the only way really to be able to make sure that you're contesting cyberspace is to be forward and engaged. It relies on having mainly very effective defences so you've got better resilience, but you also need to impose cost when people are doing things in cyberspace that break international norms. Speaking of this integration of different techniques, I'm also interested in how cyber operations work together with other types of more traditional military engagement. For example, When the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier goes to the Indo-Pacific this year, I understand that Strategic Command will be providing 
some sort of cyber defences around that deployment. Can you just explain a bit more about what that might look like? So what I'll do is I'll answer your question in two parts. I'll talk about a worked example of where we integrated cyber effects into military operations. And that was in and around Mosul and the battle that we fought against Daesh alongside the Iraqi armed forces and other coalition partners. And what we tried to do was to take what was a strength that Daesh were using, which was their ability to harness the internet and to use that to propagate a hateful ideology, to control their fighters and to provide morale and to turn that against them. And so by targeting the servers that they were using, by disrupting their communications, by countering some of the UAVs, the rudimentary UAVs, drones that they were flying, combining that at the same time in a very deliberate way with airstrikes and with manoeuvre by Iraqi security forces, we were able to gain a pretty decisive victory. So there's a good example of where you can integrate special forces, conventional forces, air, some space technology, and cyberspace to achieve a significant effect. If I turn to the Queen Elizabeth deployment, and there's a limit to what I can say here. I mean, most of our effort has been concentrated on making sure that the systems, the platform, the networks, the data that is so vital to the operation of that task group is protected and is resilient. So defence is really the foundation. It's what you start with. But we know that on the course of her deployment, we are going to come up against potentially some hostile states or non-state actors who may try to use cyberspace to disrupt or have an effect on her. Then we've got some options up our sleeves that would allow us to disrupt that. So, for instance, are you worried about eliciting a military response from Beijing if, for instance, the carrier does go to the South China Sea, which has not yet been confirmed? No, and I, I don't think it would be right for me to, to speculate about what course you will sail. We would seek to uphold international maritime law and freedom of navigation. But we're not doing anything out of the ordinary. We're simply looking to deploy a ship in international waters. I wouldn't expect the Chinese to see that as a threat. Sure. Now that the integrated review has been published, I'm interested in how you think the UK's allies have responded. Mike Mullen, who's a former chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, said last week that the cuts were a huge concern. And some military experts and strategists have suggested that with a smaller army, Britain will no longer be a tier one or a full spectrum military power. Do you think that's the case? I think, I mean, I have the greatest respect for a lot of the commentators that have been making these sort of comments. I think it's important to recognise a number of things. First of all, quite a lot of these comments have been cast looking back into history. So there are slightly unhelpful comparisons to the Falklands War or to the Gulf War. We don't think that these are the sort of threats that we're going to face in the future. And what we're doing is adapting the armed forces and adjusting their capabilities to match these future threats, the ones that I described earlier on in this podcast. And so it may well be that numbers are smaller, but in the end of the day, it's not the inputs that really matter. It's what you can do with those and the outputs. And the combination of these new technologies, the ability to bring together effects in these five domains, the ability to gain advantage through the sort of technologies that the Prime Minister was talking about when he talked about us being a great 
science and technology superpower gives you an advantage where your lethality and your agility is much, much more significant than the legacy force that we're trying to adapt. And in quite a lot of these areas, these are legacy platforms. They're right at the end of their lives. If you want to see what happens to legacy platforms, I'd point you again to what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. So it would be irresponsible not to equip our soldiers, sailors, and Air Force personnel with the sort of equipment that they're going to need to engage in these sort of threats in the future, and also to bring those together, exploiting information age technologies in a way that keep us right at the cutting edge of of military capability. And talking specifically of these new capabilities, there was a recent report in the US by Eric Schmidt about AI, and that warned particularly about China's use of AI in the military and specifically how it will use this technology on the battlefield to undermine conventional armed forces. Now, part of the integrated review announcement was that you at Strategic Command are setting up an AI centre for defence. So how do you see the UK and its allies using this sort of technology in future? So what artificial intelligence brings is an ability to manipulate and exploit the huge amounts of data that we collect from our sensors and from our platforms in this sort of Internet of Things era, with data ranging from satellites right the way to mobile phones, and to sift that and to do the work that human analysts would normally take weeks to do. And that allows you to move analysts and decision makers sort of further up the value chain. So artificial intelligence will be enormously important, first of all, in improving our understanding and also improving the quality and the speed and the tempo of decision-making. That's why if you don't exploit artificial intelligence, you will very, very quickly be outpaced by other threats and other threat actors. But it also allows you to exploit some of the technologies that we know are coming on stream around autonomous systems. So with artificial intelligence, you can begin to use autonomous systems that can remove people as much as possible from danger and put, whether they're drones or whether they're unmanned systems in the air or in the sea or on land, in a way that's still controlled by humans, but exploits and increases the effect of a smaller number of people. So very simply, in the future, rather than having small numbers of very large platforms staffed by lots of people, I would expect us to see much larger numbers of much smaller, more expendable platforms, which harness artificial intelligence and work in conjunction with humans. Realistically, of those two areas that you've talked about, do you think the intelligence elements of AI are going to be usable and come on stream more quickly than the more autonomous aspects? Or are these two sort of being developed in parallel? They feed off each other. So we're already applying artificial intelligence to data on intelligence platforms and intelligence databases. And it's having a very dramatic effect on our ability to sift data and to begin to to deduce the signal from the noise in this vast amounts of data that we have at the moment. As we grow our understanding and our capability to do that, so that then bleeds into how you can apply that to the other areas that I've described. And, you know, although we're not spending the same amount of money as other states, notably China, are doing on artificial intelligence because their economy dwarfs ours, it is worth 
reminding ourselves that some of the most cutting edge thinking around artificial intelligence comes from the UK's research and development sector. And what the integrated review is trying to do is to make sure that that sovereign science base becomes one of the sources of our strength. And another application of the science base is going to be space, which obviously Strategic Command has an overview of. And there's there's been a lot of discussion about the militarisation of space recently, not least since Moscow was accused last year of testing an anti-satellite weapon. Can you just explain for people, what are the actual threats of the militarisation of space? What might happen in a worst case scenario? You just have to imagine what a day without space would look like. I mean, we rely on it for so many aspects of our daily life, not just in military, but also in commercial, civilian and economic activity. So your mobile phone would would cease to operate. The financial networks depend on the precision navigation and timing devices that are provided from satellites. So the effect of losing, whether they're communications satellites, whether they're global positioning system satellites or indeed whether they're weather satellites from space, would have a really devastating effect on our economy and our way of life. And what the UK has been doing for some time and is taking a lead on in the UN is to try to establish a set of norms of behaviour in space that prevent its militarisation and prevent the sort of devastating effects that irresponsible behaviour would have, whether that's through fields of debris or removing communication satellites. Now, to do all of that, we have to invest significantly, I mean, significantly more than we're doing at the moment. We already have a system of communication satellites called Skynet. The name precedes the film, in case you were wondering. And those are being upgraded so that we can maintain sovereign communication satellites that we need. But we're also developing, under the formation of Space Command and working with other parts of government, our ability to improve our awareness, what we call space domain awareness, so we can map what's going on in space, where things are. We then need to establish a better system of command and control so that we can track what you might call nefarious actions in space and provide information and intelligence to protect us and and our allies. We need to continue to build the communications sector that we've got in space and the satellites And we're growing capabilities around multi-spectral surveillance satellites. So ultimately, we don't want to see space militarised. We think it should be the sort of open-to-all, benign, global commons, if you like, that it has been up until now. But unfortunately, what we're seeing from a range of different countries, not least Russia and China, they're taking steps to militarise space, and we need to harden ourselves against that. I think especially hearing you talk about these aspirations that the UK has in areas such as artificial intelligence and cyber and space. One of the biggest questions coming out of the review is how Britain now manages this gap between older equipment, such as tanks being retired and newer technologies actually being ready to use Can you explain at all how this will work? For instance, in the shorter term, do you think we'll be relying more on our allies to provide capabilities that we may currently be without? What we're not doing is discarding our ability to provide the sort of hard power warfighting capabilities that ultimately will contribute to deterrence and are a critical part of NATO. So although we're reducing the overall 
volume of, for example, tanks that we hold, that's still meeting the numbers that we have committed to NATO. We're just reducing some of the sort of reserve pool that we've got. And we're upgrading them to a much more capable platform. We're removing the warrior armoured vehicles dating back to the 80s, but we're replacing them with boxer armoured vehicles on a sort of one-for-one basis. So I don't recognise the characterization of gaps or disinvestment in more traditional hard-power capabilities. What we are doing, though, is making much more of a decisive shift to technologies and domains where if we don't do it, we will be left behind. And that's clearly in cyberspace and space, but it's also about enabling the digital transformation, the creation of, if you like, a digital backbone on which we build these new and disruptive technologies. And then we're investing, I think it's 6.6 billion in really cutting edge technologies, working with the science community and the private sector. We've always been very strong at this. And that will allow us to exploit genuinely disruptive technologies like quantum technologies, which are already coming in faster than anyone's predicting. I suppose what I was referring to is that inevitably there's more discussion in the command paper, for instance, of what capabilities will no longer exist than there is detail about the new technology coming on stream. And for instance, you know, we've heard a lot about autonomous technology, drone warfare, and there wasn't actually a huge amount of detail about what that will look like. But I realise that these things are not necessarily fully formed yet. And I presume that there's a, a period of discovery and development while you wait to see what those things will look like. I mean, there's a couple of points to make here. I mean, first of all, we've got a really vibrant innovation sector in defence. I'm lucky enough to have inherited from my predecessor an organisation called the J-Hub, which isn't working on cutting-edge R&D because we leave that to the defence science and technology laboratories. But what it's doing is looking out into the commercial sector to find ways of combining immersion technologies and then procuring them in an innovative way. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a drone called the I-9. It's an armed drone that will fly into buildings and around inside buildings. The reason it's called the I-9 is because traditionally we gave that job to a dog, a canine, putting a dog or humans in harm's way in clearing buildings. We can now do that with a drone, which is exploiting the basic artificial intelligence and algorithms, and it's under control of an operator, so it's not fully autonomous. Or in medical technology, which is often some of the most exciting, we're now developing a small handhold ultrasound device, and it will allow you to diagnose injuries and the type of injury that someone has sustained, making their treatment much more effective and also potentially reducing the risk of having to evacuate them when we find it may not be so serious. So these are the sort of technologies that our existing innovation sector and organisations are getting after, and I'm constantly amazed by them. I mean, the truth is that we're finding our way into the future by experimentation. So you will see a programme both in synthetics, but also on real-life operations and in training to experiment with the sort of technologies and the sort of techniques that we're describing. And you allow the science and the data to lead you into the sort of investments you need to do with a much closer relationship with industry. And in particular, making sure that we look after the small and medium-sized enterprises from whom often these best ideas come. I'm really glad that you mentioned the relationship with industry there, because the final thing I wanted to ask about is recruitment. And in particular, 
around something like cyber, there is huge competition from the private sector and even within other parts of the public sector for people who have these extremely important skills. How are the armed forces going to make sure that they are able to recruit the best people for this sort of area? So sometimes I look at our Israeli counterparts and I'm very envious because they have a system of conscription, of course, in Israel. And what they do is they select the very best talent and then they put them into all the areas that Strategic Command is responsible for, so cyber intelligence and special forces. So I don't have that option open to me. But I do have one thing that gaming companies and that other commercial organisations who can pay more don't have, and that is that if you come and join defence and you join Strategic Command working in cyberspace, you're not operating against avatars in a game. You're operating against real-life threat actors, and nothing can beat that. So we already have a lot of people operating in the cyber area, and I've been incredibly encouraged by our ability to identify real latent talent that is already in defence. We're also expanding our reserve forces because a lot of our very best cyber operators already work in cyber security or cyber roles, and they enjoy, for all the reasons I described, they enjoy coming and working in defence and with us and with our partners in GCHQ. But I'm also interested in people who may want to come in and spend a bit of time in defence, gain their credentials, their credibility, and then move in and out. And so that idea of a much more flexible approach to a career in defence, encouraging lateral entry, and also looking at people with very different entry standards to what we traditionally expect. So, you know, neurodiversity is something that we absolutely welcome because it can lead to incredibly imaginative and effective operators in, in cyber roles. Are you already actively recruiting for these different sorts of people who will work maybe more flexibly in a defence career? At the moment, we're still in the process of preparing the recruiting campaigns, the sort of terms and conditions of service, if you like, the contracts that people would do. But I would expect that in the course of the next year, those roles really begin to open up and the different routes to come in will also open up. That was General Sir Patrick Sanders ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.